Welcome to Hancock Talks, your source for insights about life insurance trends and opportunities with a focus on tactics that can help drive your sales. This podcast is for financial professional use only. It is not intended for use with the public. This material is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide advice. The opinions and views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of John Hancock. Please listen to the important disclosures at the end of this podcast. Now, let's get started with your host, Karen Egan. Hello, welcome to Hancock Talks, and thanks for being with us today. Today, we're joined by Kevin Blanton, Associate Counsel in our Advanced Markets Group, who's been with John Hancock for more than 20 years. Prior to that, Kevin spent more than a decade in private practice in Boston in estate and tax planning. Kevin joined our podcast series at the end of 2020, so I'm eager to have him back with us and to catch up on what has been a really busy year. So welcome, Kevin. Thanks, Karen. Good to be here. Well, it's been one heck of a year, hasn't it? (laughs) There was a lot of activity at the beginning of the year and then throughout the summer and then another flurry just recently. So why don't we start with a quick overview of what happened you know, before we get into what it all might mean. Uh, sure, Karen, and, and you're right. This this was one for the history books. As you remember, we came into 2021 after the presidential election and its aftermath, uh, not really knowing what to expect. No one knew for certain at that time anything, really, uh, if the pandemic was abating or just taking a breather before roaring on. No one had ever even heard the term Delta variant uh, yet, or knew what to expect uh, of economic activity in the new year. In our tax, estate planning, and insurance world, of course, all thoughts were on well, what I call the uh, third certainty after death and taxes, namely that uh, after every presidential election, there's going to be sweeping tax legislation. So people are thinking about that. By May, President Biden had released his proposed budget and the so-called Green Book proposals, uh, making little quote symbols with my fingers here, making some familiar tax proposals that come out almost every year, regularly at least, but never really seem to get passed into law. Some already have. Many people in our industry were a bit shocked by some of the proposals, uh, including, and most of our listeners will remember these, the partial elimination of the carryover basis on gifts, whether made during life or at death certain reversals of the and modifications of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017 were also in there. I think everybody here remembers those uh, absolutely bizarre grant or trust proposals. We'll probably touch on that a little bit later on. But but I think uh, after you do this for a while, you start to, to learn that any initial reactions are almost always going to be premature. You know, So we, we all freaked out a little bit over that. And then it just sort of quieted down a little bit. The Green Book proposals were argued about and changed over the summer until September, when the first truly major legislation of the administration was introduced. That legislation included proposed uh, new tax laws that most of the people in our industry found to be uh, shocking, I think it's fair to say. And there was much too much to go into there. I mean, uh, that bill was the full $3.5 trillion bill, 881 pages, by the way. So that was fun reading. Way too much to go into depth here on that. That doesn't really matter because it didn't last. At the time we're recording this right now, of course, there's been 
three different rewrites of that first legislation. Part of it, the infrastructure bill, which was in the news a great deal over the last couple of weeks here at the end of November, was passed with bipartisan support and signed into law by President Biden. The other part, what a lot of people are calling the social programs part of the bill, has been pared back to half of its original size and been through, I lost count of the number of rewrites, I think it's four. And just here's one of those odd peculiarities. Back in September, the original bill came out $3.5 trillion, but 881 pages. By uh, October, it had been cut back to just $1.75 trillion, but it was up to 1,684 pages. And yes, I've read them. Um, <laughs> the most recent couple, really, we're now up to 2,468 pages, uh, but at $1.85 trillion. And at the time we're recording this podcast, that bill has been passed by the House of Representatives and is headed to the Senate where we think its path is going to be a bit harder. But our comments here today will reflect the content of the bill that passed the House on November 19th. We expect that if it passes the Senate, it almost certainly will have been modified, maybe significantly, and we'll have to go back for a reconciliation and joint committee. I think there's very little chance it'll just be passed as it is uh, by the Senate. Uh, our bicameral system allows each chamber to have their own rules, and that complicates things a little bit. So that's that's pretty much uh, what we've seen over the year. It's been a whole lot of activity, but not a whole lot getting done so far. Mm -hmm. All right. So where does that really leave us at the moment when we think about state planning and that landscape? What does that look like right now? Well, we may not know exactly where we're going to wind up, uh, where we're going to be, but it it's helpful to know right where we are now. And as a rule, we typically don't pay a lot of attention to things that aren't laws yet because they are likely to change, but people need to plan, you know, so they want an idea of where things are headed. I mean, right now, with respect to gift and estate taxes, we have a bit more comfort than we did a couple of months ago when a lot more was on the table. I mean, I'll tell you what we do know right now, according to the law right now. The inflation index basic exclusion amount, what we used to call the unified credit, is presently 11.7 million. It is going to be 12,060,000 on January 1st. Of course, uh, that's per individual. So that would be 24,120,000 per married couple for 2022. That we've calculated. The uh, generation skipping transfer taxation exemption is tied to the basic exclusion amount. So it's going to be the same, the same 12060000 By the way, annual gift tax exclusion did go up in 2022, finally, to 16000 It'll be a few years before that changes again under current law, unless, of course, we have runaway inflation, uh, which hopefully we don't. If clients don't use those exemptions, the uh, the basic exclusion amount, GST exemption, all of that, before they're set to sunset in 2026 or earlier, if the legislature can actually get that done, the clients will probably lose the ability to do that. It's notable uh, that the last two versions of the legislation, and including the one that uh, just passed the House, does not contain an acceleration of the sunset. Now, we don't know uh, where we're going to go 
ultimately, but I, I we feel it's a, unlikely in the extreme that the ultimate law will contain that acceleration. So we're fairly comfortable with what we have in that. I mean, because of the difficulty of getting any major tax legislation passed with both chambers so evenly divided, we know the numbers. And in a way, we're very much in the same place planning-wise that we were last year. Clients who can benefit from the current high estate gift and GST exemptions have a significant incentive to use those now, to act now. But now we actually have a tool to help motivate clients you know, to get off the dime and actually use those. Some planners are suggesting that at least one spouse, because we have the uh, portability to fall back on, at least one spouse use up all of his or her entire basic exclusion amount to fully utilize that exemption. All right. But what about clients who are just not willing to make that large of a gift right now or who may want to, like we say, wait and see how the elections settle and how likely it is that Congress will lower that basic exclusion amount? What actions do you see clients taking now? Well, we actually see them doing what we've been recommending uh, for some time. That we usually recommend clients facing estate tax exposure under the reduced exclusion amount who don't already have suitable vehicles. They may want to consider having irrevocable trust drafted now so that they can gift to those trusts uh, if and when a reduction in the exemption amounts looks likely. It's worth mentioning now that this has passed the House and doesn't include that that sunset, clients may be inclined to uh, relax a little bit. I think they shouldn't, but uh, it's worth mentioning that estate planning attorneys are always just maxed out at year end. And if a change in the exclusion amount starts to look more likely or, or any other uh, tax change proposals are introduced and look likely, it's it's going to become even more difficult to schedule time with an attorney to get new planning done and uh, trust drafted. So clients shouldn't make the mistake of leaving planning until the last minute because that last minute is might uh, already be too late. It's funny you mentioned, used the expression, wait and see. A lot of clients have been considering what we refer to in the vernacular as wait and see loans. And we very much agree with the benefit of that. I'm happy to be seeing that. What this means generally is that the clients will make a loan currently to an irrevocable trust, usually an intentionally defective trust, a grantor trust, so that depending on what future circumstances are and what the client's goals are, the trust can either repay the note in full or the grantor who made the gift, uh, made the loan, I'm sorry, can just forgive the loan and thereby make a gift to the trust. And I mentioned grantor trust. It's worth mentioning here that the bizarre grantor trust proposals that were ultimately scrapped and are not in the bill that just passed the House. So that's that's going to be a lot easier to get that done. Uh, a similar strategy to the wait and see loan is uh, really the same thing, but it just looks a little different. The grantor will sell assets to an intentionally defective trust like a wait and see loan. That trust can either repay the loan in full or the grantor can forgive the note and thereby make a gift. I mean, it, it, we treat it like it's a different thing, but in fact, it's it's still a loan to the trust, one just of cash and the other cash to purchase assets, but works exactly the same way. The, the benefit of these strategies is that they can lock in currently very low applicable federal rates and shift current growth 
outside of the client's taxable estate for estate tax purposes. To give you an idea, the uh, applicable federal rates for December of 2021 are for short-term loans, that is up to three years, 0.33%. That's one-third of 1%. For midterm loans, that's uh, more than three years, up to nine years, 1.26%. And for long-term, that's longer than nine years, 1.9%. These rates are still very low, but it's worth noting they're substantially higher than a year ago. And many projections that we see show rates could go much higher in the coming year or two. And by the way, this is a good thing to keep in mind also if anticipating any type of lending strategy in a client's personal or business planning. But bottom line is uh, setting up this, this kind of structure puts the client in the position of being able to not make a huge gift if they're not comfortable doing it, but be able to act very quickly if it starts to look like the gift and the state tax exemptions are likely to be reduced in the near future. You know, have that trust in place, maybe even make the loan to it. If it comes right down to it, then you can decide what to do. And of course, the obvious uh, step after that is to use the unique features of life insurance inside the irrevocable trust to, to greatly leverage the power of, of the gift that's made or the loan that's made. All right, let's turn our attention and talk a little bit about the individual income tax rates. What do you see in this current version of the Build Back Better bill with respect to specifically income taxes? So given what might happen with income taxes in the coming weeks or months, what are some of the areas that planners can and are focusing on? Uh, sure. Although most of the weirder, uh, scarier parts of the airway perhaps <laughs> of the bill are gone, a few of them still remain. If you go on the website, the White House website, uh, there's a part of it dedicated to the Build Back Better bill. And back in September, when uh, the first version of this came out, the framework was was released and it made a point of stating in so many words that no one making less than 400000 a year will see their taxes increase, quote, by even a penny. You know, we'll see how that plays out because the White House isn't, you know, singularly in charge of what gets passed. But it is clear from the text of the bill that passed the House last week that those making more than 400000 will see increases. That we see as the center of the bullseye in, in most of these uh proposals in the legislation. This bill that passed the House provides a surcharge of 5% on modified adjust gross income above $10 million, and an additional 3% surcharge on modified adjusted gross income above $25 million. In that same income ballpark, the bill also limits the ability to make additional contributions to Roth or traditional IRAs if the result of that contribution would be to increase the balance of that plan beyond $10 million. So we're talking about very large uh, qualified plans, IRAs, Roth IRAs, that sort of thing. Here's something new that we haven't seen before. This bill also would accelerate required minimum distributions until the combined balance of all of these plans, we're talking about 401ks, uh, IRAs, and Roth IRAs falls below $10 million. So that sounds 
scary, you know, until you look at the rest of it. Uh, both of those provisions apply only to taxpayers earning more than $400,000 a year or $450,000 uh, jointly. The required minimum distribution on that is is fairly accelerated. It's As it's written right now, the amount would be 50% each year of the excess over $10 million. So Wow. Obviously, significant. Eleven million five hundred thousand in the first year. So, I mean, as I mentioned before, happily the the bill currently doesn't contain any of the changes to present law regarding step up in basis uh, for gifts, or as I mentioned, those those utterly weird grantor trust rule <laughs> changes. <laughs> Planners should keep in mind that obviously, as income tax rates increase for any given taxpayer, life insurance becomes increasingly attractive as a tax-favored asset. I should mention also, though strictly not affecting all of our clients, on a more hopeful note, especially if you live in a state with the higher property values or state and local taxes, this current bill that just passed the House would raise the cap on the so-called SALT deduction, state and local tax deduction, from the $10,000 cap under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017 to $80,000. So that would probably result in a lot more people itemizing than did last year. Although having said that, we expect that provision to face some serious opposition when it gets to the Senate from progressives who have already signaled that they would like to limit that to those taxpayers making less than $400,000. So that benefit wouldn't go to higher income individuals. Mm -hmm. All right. Similar question, but let's switch to from a business taxation perspective. What are the potential changes that corporations may face? Right. This has been scaled back quite a bit from original versions. Under the current draft that was just passed by the House, most of the most draconian provisions from earlier provisions are gone, but it, it still contains what was essentially a 15% alternative minimum tax on income for businesses, now with profits in excess of $1 billion. That's billion with a B, lots of profits. This seems to be a a watered-down version of an earlier proposal uh, in the earlier versions of a 15% AMT for corporations with earnings above $100 million. But much higher uh, threshold now, but it still generates a significant portion of the revenue necessary to fund the programs contained in the bill and introduced by the bill. Uh, There's also a number of provisions in the current bill affecting what is called, quote, global intangible low-taxed income. Some people find that uh, funny that uh, the acronym is guilty. And the the guilty provisions, so to speak, uh, affect income by and among international corporations. I actually wind up dealing with those quite a bit in cross-border transactions with uh, Canada and other other countries. In short, guilty is really, it's it's enormously complicated, but it's it's a system of U.S. taxation of income earned by foreign corporations if owned in part, in a significant enough part, by U.S. persons, uh, taxpayers or, or corporations, and thereby the U.S. taxpayer will wind up recognizing for their own purposes some of the income that was actually earned by this foreign corporation. Hmm. That's an interesting one. Yeah. So do you think the changes are likely 
I mean, even if they aren't passed in 2021, do you think some or all of these changes are coming eventually? Well, that is $64,000 question, of course. Uh, <laughs> this is very similar to the same questions we were asking at the beginning of the year, and the landscape hasn't changed that much, if at all. It, it's that legislative action actually seems harder now than it was in January. Uh, and that's made made harder in part because we have two different houses in the legislature, two different chambers in the legislature, and they have different rules. The House of Representatives will pass a bill with a simple 50-50 majority. The Senate has the filibuster, and a filibuster can only be overridden by a supermajority of 60%. Of course, the ability to filibuster can be eliminated permanently by a simple majority. Uh, you may have heard that referred to as the nuclear option, but there probably isn't much stomach for that. Uh, both parties realize that eventually they're going to be in the minority and they're probably going to want the filibuster. An exception to the filibuster, however, in the Senate are budget reconciliation bills. The Budget Act was passed back in 1974, which provided for budget reconciliation. And almost immediately, shortly thereafter, the Byrd Rule was passed to address perceived abuses of budget reconciliation. The Byrd Rule can kill, among other things, proposals that will, by their own terms, raise the deficit after 10 years at the maximum. Uh, in short, they're, they're not fully funded. Now, tax increases, like what we see in the current bill that's passed the House, generally don't increase the deficit unless they also include provisions that uh, increase spending. But the barest possible majority held by the Democrats in each chamber of the legislature requires that not one single member of the party breaks rank in a vote. Uh, and as as we've been seeing all this year, that's not easy, if possible at all. It's uh, not easy to get agreement among the many factions within a party. The Republicans have been better this year at unifying to stop legislation than the Democrats have been at getting legislation passed, but that could change. So in short, it isn't impossible that you know all of this gets passed, but the more shocking proposals remain unlikely in the extreme in this environment. If you want a bill to get passed in this legislature or one like it, it had better be very bland. <laughs> Finally, in all likelihood, the window for the most dramatic change, if if any window exists, may be short. Uh, we've, we've all heard about the most common historical results of midterm elections after a change in administration. And if the Republicans regain control of either chamber in the legislature in the coming midterms, then any new tax changes, any at all, uh, becomes much harder. All right. So taking all of this that we've discussed into consideration, if you were a planner, what would you be discussing with your clients today? Is there a way to be well prepared if we don't really know where we're headed, even in the short term? Well, I've touched on a couple of these already, but this really calls for what we've always been preaching, and that is that flexibility is the most valuable thing in planning. Tax laws, all laws, as a matter of fact, uh, and circumstances can change in the short term and in the long term. 
So it's always best to maximize flexibility. Don't assume that the laws are going to stay exactly the same as they are right now, because they probably won't. What does that mean? I mean, again, as we always say, outright gifting is a good idea. Use your exemptions while you have them. Uh, regardless mm-hmm. of what happens in the short term or the intermediate term, because the sunset in the basic exclusion amount and the, the generation skipping transfer tax exclusion amount is baked into present law, it makes sense for a lot of clients to use some or all of the remaining basic exclusion amount in excess of what it's likely to come down to when the sunset happens uh, in 2026 or before then. Uh, And the math is really fairly straightforward. If the base that we're calculating against right now is 10 million and will drop to 5 million, then the basic exclusion amount that we calculate will be exactly half as well. For example, on January 1st, the basic exclusion amount will be $12,060,000. So if the sunset were to happen on January 1st, the resulting basic exclusion amount will be $6,030,000. Uh, Likewise, I think I touched on standby trusts as well. If our clients are reluctant to make large outright gifts uh, to trust today, but would likely take that kind of action when and if the basic exclusion amount reduces or if other tax proposals look likely to get passed in future legislation, it can be a good idea to have the foundational planning, including the drafting of a trust that can be there and ready to receive large gifts done today. And by the way, that's a lot easier to get clients to do now that the grant or trust proposals are off the table, at least for the moment. No one's worried about those bizarre proposals. <laughs> we mentioned wait and see uh, loans as well. As I described, clients can make a loan today at the near historic minimum rates. Clients may be willing to make a much larger loan that they can get back, then they would be willing to make a gift in the same large amount. Uh, And then they can decide later, when we have a better idea of what's going to happen, whether to turn it into a gift by forgiving the loan or to recall the principal and get it back. Also good now and almost always uh, to remember trust and policy review. Think of this as an engagement opportunity to contact your clients, to talk to your clients, to make sure that what they have best suits where we all think we're going to be. You can start with the policy, uh, review the policy first to make sure that it can still meet the client's evolved needs in light of current and potential future changes. And then make sure that the way that the policy is owned, whether outright or in trust, still makes sense. And finally, if the policy is trust owned, look to see that that trust uh, still makes the same sense as when it was originally proposed and drafted the way that it was. We'll know more soon. And honestly, after the midterm elections, we may be in a completely different reality, but that's what we know now. Well, thank you so much for all of your insight. You've certainly given the listeners much to think about, and it was really great having you back with us. Oh, thanks for having me, Karen. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of Hancock Talks. For more resources on today's topic, as well as access to more information about how to grow your insurance business, visit jhsaleshub.com. And don't forget to download and subscribe to the show to get new episodes as they come available. Thanks for listening. 
This episode was recorded on November 23rd, 2021. All information discussed is accurate and current to the best of our knowledge at that time. The opinions expressed by participants are their own, are subject to change, and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of John Hancock. Actual results may be more or less favorable. This material does not constitute advice. Anyone interested in these transactions or topics may want to seek advice based on his or her particular circumstances from independent professionals. Trust should be drafted by an attorney familiar with such matters in order to take into account income and estate tax laws, including the generation skipping tax. Failure to do so could result in adverse tax treatment of trust proceeds. There can be costs associated with drafting a trust. Life insurance death benefit proceeds are generally excludable from the beneficiary's gross income for income tax purposes. There are few exceptions, such as when a life insurance policy has been transferred for valuable consideration. This material is not intended for use by a taxpayer for the purposes of avoiding any IRS penalty. Comments on taxation are based on John Hancock's understanding of current tax law, which is subject to change. No legal tax or accounting advice can be given by John Hancock, its agents, employees, or licensed agents. Loans and withdrawals will reduce the death benefit, cash surrender value, and may cause the policy to lapse. Lapse or surrender of a policy with a loan may cause the recognition of taxable income. Policies classified as modified endowment contracts may be subject to tax when a loan or withdrawal is made. A federal tax penalty of 10% may also apply if the loan or withdrawal is taken prior to age 59 and one half. Life insurance products are issued by John Hancock Life Insurance Company, USA, Boston, Mass, 02116, not licensed in New York, and John Hancock Life Insurance Company of New York, Valhalla, New York, 10595. This recorded material may have been recorded to support the promotion or marketing of the topics addressed in this recorded material. Individuals interested in the topics discussed should consult with their professional advisors to examine legal, tax, accounting, or financial aspects of these topics. MLINY 111-921-863-1.